Well, I read about uh, a school in Louisiana. It was, it's called Southwood High School. It's in Shreveport, Louisiana. And they uh, had a lot of fighting going on there. There actually had been 23 arrests uh, of the students who were fighting in the school. And so a group of about 40 dads stepped in. Um, they, uh, they actually formed shifts or took shifts. And so whenever you would go, there would always be uh, at least a few of the dads on, on the campus. And they weren't there for discipline or to break up fights. They were just there to lift spirits and tell dad jokes and give out. I was going to tell a joke this morning before I started, and I read three jokes to Jen, and, uh, and she said don't do any of them. Uh, I don't think it was the joke. I think it was just the way that I tell the jokes. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, um, Michael Lafitte had started this dads on duty. He said because uh, we decided the best people we, who can take care of our kids are us, and they formed this group, and no fights have happened since then. One of the students said the school's just been happy. You can feel it. And so dads on duty will have a, a permanent place at Southwood High, and they're actually trying to start chapters across the country as well. And I, I love this story because I think our words uh, have a lot of power. The, the environments that we create, the, the culture, the atmosphere, uh, has a, a lot of power. And, um, but our words only have power, I think, if, if uh, other things happen first. Uh, sometimes we just don't feel like people listen to us. And I think on Father's Day, I am going to speak to the fathers some, um, and to parents maybe even uh, a little bit more generally, but also to everyone. And you're going you're gonna to catch on uh, this morning. Uh, I, mean, I know you're, you have enough intelligence to know that this is probably just for the dads, and this is probably for everyone. Um, but so we, we wonder when we speak to our kids, do they really hear us anyway? Or are they really going to follow us? Or are they just acting like that until we're, we're gone or they're gone? Um, but then there's the question of our, our actions versus our words. Uh, what matters more? The words that I speak, the truth that I teach my kids, or, or the example that I said? Solomon wrote in Proverbs um, 18, verse 21, the tongue has the power of life and death. I would assume that you could probably think of a time that someone said, said something very encouraging to you. And I, and I think you could probably also think of a time that someone said something that uh, really broke your heart, um, maybe just beat you down. Uh, we remember those things that cause a lot of emotion, both good and bad. And, and so what is it? Is it what we say with all that power, or is it what we do? Well, the answer is both. I came across the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in this letter, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians um, about his example, and he says, both like a nursing mother and like a father, um, that he could use his words because of his, his example, because of the, the culture he, he helped to, uh, to create, his words had more power. Well, so being Father's Day, I, I want to talk a little bit about how, um, how dads can have more credibility with our words. How do we make our words matter? Before we look at the kind of words that, we're, w that we should use, let's look at the context. So the question is, how do we make our words matter more? 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning at, at verse 7, he says, Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So first, our words matter when we show affection. 
In verse 8, he uses a unique word that means to feel drawn to someone. Uh, I think, I've heard this quote many times. I, I try to find who actually said it first, and I'm not sure who said it first, but Theodore Roosevelt, uh, at least on Google, he said it maybe. Um, but, it, but he said, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Unless you're going to an expert to find some kind of just information, um, you know, we'll, we'll read about something and we don't know who actually said it. And, and that's fine. We're trying to learn information. But as far as someone uh, encouraging you or, or uh, teaching you how to live or model in some way, if, if they don't think you care, they're not going to listen to what you have to say. And so that's what this is really about is how do we let people know that they care for us? How do we let our kids know that we actually care for them so that they'll listen to what we have to say and trust us? And so showing affection, it, it seems to be uh, the first way that we could do that. It's not good enough to say, well, I'm not an affectionate type. Um, or, um, you know, I've got boys and not girls. Or, or my kids are a little bit older. No, there's ways to show affection uh, to boys and girls, young and old. We have different levels, different ways to do that that's appropriate. I read a story about a guy uh, before he deployed to Afghanistan Staff Sergeant Philip Gray sat down and he wrote 270 letters or notes to his seven-year-old daughter, one for each day that he would be away. He wanted to make sure his daughter knew that she was always on his mind, and his notes for Rosie, was her name, encouraged her to do her best at school and run fast in PE and enjoy her activities and hobbies. And his wife, Kristen, said uh, he, was, he was very big on feel-good words, encouraging words. And so he left October 7, 2019, and when he was gone, every single day, Kristen, his wife, would put one of those notes uh, in his daughter's lunchbox or, or just give it to her when she was at home, when school wasn't going on. And he included uh, pictures of snowmen and pumpkins to represent the holidays he missed. When he came back, she said, now that, now that you're home, are you going to keep giving me those notes? Now, I, I share this because I think sometimes we make excuses. I'm, I'm too busy for my kids. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, to hear that someone was going to be uh, completely away and disconnected for 270 days and still found a way to uh, show a form of affection to his kid, I mean, it would take an awful lot to have an excuse not to do something. Um, we can all do it if we want to. The second thing is our words matter when we're transparent. He says in verse 8, uh, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And we need to share the gospel with our kids, for sure. They need to know the love of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. But if they're going to hear us, we need to share our lives as well. Um, I, I, I try to think, what does that look like? I have a seven and nine-year-old daughter, and uh, you know, I, I share my feelings with them. I, I share... Uh, things that make me happy, um, I even share my fears a little bit. They, they think I, I don't know why, they think I know everything, like literally everything. My nine-year-old doesn't believe it anymore, but as they grew up, I just kept telling them that I know every single thing, and they would ask me a question, and I would just give them an answer, and they didn't know that it wasn't the right answer. And so they literally thought, <laughs> I just started to tell them that's not true, I only know what I need to know. But uh, anyway... <laughs> Uh, we, we, have to, we have to share with our kids and, and help them to understand what it looks like to be an adult if we want them to model that or to see that model uh, as they grow up. Because we are raising adults. We're not raising kids. The goal is for them to become uh, mature adults. 
Um, he, he keeps going, verse 9, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Our words matter when we work hard and sacrifice. Uh, Dad's not willing to pay the price. Their words probably won't matter all that much to their kids. It means working hard to provide in some way. That doesn't always look the same for every family. Most dads, uh, though, are really, we're just boys in grown-up bodies. Uh, we want to fish and golf and play basketball and video games. And I just went golfing on Friday. I played basketball a couple weeks ago. Those aren't bad. But being a dad means that we have to sacrifice some. We have to be willing to give some time to our kids. And maybe it means bringing our kids in. Go fishing with your kids instead of alone. Teach them how to play basketball if that's what you want to do. Whatever your hobby is, maybe you can find a way to, to bring them in. We need to redefine success. Um, there's nothing wrong with being successful, but we might have to make a decision. Maybe we don't take a promotion because we'll be on the road too much and away from our kids. Or we don't take this job because it'll put us far away or, or take the kids out of school and they don't want to move. Sometimes we have to make those sacrifices uh, even if it's not our first choice. He says, you are witnesses, and so, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Our words matter when we're authentic. doesn't mean perfect. It means just to be real with your kids. Our kids need to see us fighting the same battles that we're asking them to fight. Uh, they need to see us hold to the values that we're trying to teach them and use the words that we're asking them to use. And uh, if we don't want them to say certain things, then we probably shouldn't say, well, that's just for adults, because do we really want them to talk like that when they're adults? Now, there are things that are appropriate for adults that probably aren't for kids. But I think that line is, uh, we probably we probably push that gap a little further than it should be. I mean, really. And so this is the culture he talks about first. This is what Paul says first in those first four verses. Uh, this is what it looks like as you teach your kids. And then, he, then he basically tells us, okay, here's how you talk to your kids. Now, this, I'm, I'm going to reemphasize, this letter was not from parents for kids. This was from Paul um, and, and the people working with him to the church in Thessalonica. But I, I picked it because he used the, first the example of the mother, and now coming up to here, he says this. For you know that we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children. So it's expected. Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So Paul compares his ministry to the people to the way the father communicates to his own children, so one, it's for a father to his kids, but it's also for all Christians, how we relate to one another. And he uses these three terms. He says, first, that your words should be encouraging. It means to call alongside, to, to call alongside, to take action, encouraging them to do something. And, and we need to call our children into action. It might be uh, calling them into action to pick up their toys or to say thank you um, or to call if they're going to be late. As a dad, I'm sure that you feel like you do this a lot, but uh, it might not. Uh, it might feel like it's just too much. It's not doing it; it's doing it well. And and Paul is telling us, here's how you communicate with people well. Uh, we need clarity when we when we speak to our kids. I if I say, hey, I need you to clean the bathroom. Um, well, that might not go well at their age now, but but what does that look like? I say, I, I need your. You got to clean your your room. 
well, that just means maybe getting stuff off the floor. So I should probably say, hey, make sure everything's off the floor. That's, clear, or cer- or that's clarity. We need to be certain, or we need certainty in, in, our, in our words as well. Um, I think this is the hardest thing for me right now and with the age of my kids, and I, and I think this is the case probably for uh, all parents, to be able to say something and, and, uh, and your kids know that you mean it the first time. Uh, I'm working really hard right now with my girls. We, you know, we'll say, hey, girls, it's time to go to bed. And then, like, you know, 30 seconds later, they haven't moved. And, and so, hey, did you hear what, also, do you hear what your mom said? Or do you hear what I said? You need to go to bed. And nothing. And then, like, a minute later. And so then we just threaten their lives if they're not in bed in 10 seconds. Uh, you know, it, it's hard. It's hard. We want that balance. Like, I don't want to threaten their lives. I know that's not what Paul means by this. Um, but we're just trying to teach him. So uh, he also says to use words that are comforting. Uh, that means to speak to someone in a friendly way when our children are hurt. And again, this is when anyone's hurt, uh, when they're confused, when they're discouraged, when they need comfort. We comfort them remembering that just because it's not a big deal to us doesn't mean it's not a big deal to them. I mean, for a 5-year-old or a 12-year-old or even a, a 25-year-old, uh, for, for the adult children that you might have, uh, something that's going on with them, you think, that's not really that big of a deal, or why are you upset about that? Well, to them, it's a big deal, so we have to learn to comfort them, uh, even for things that probably don't matter that much to us. Uh, we can affirm them uh, a lot more than, um, than, than criticizing. Research shows that for every, every positive statement in the average home, there are 10 negative or critical ones. Well, former UCLA basketball coach John Wooden, he talked about when, his, when, his, uh, when he was younger, he watched his dad uh, in, the, in rural Indiana, they would pay local farmers uh, to take teams of mules or horses into gravel pits and, and put the gravel in, in the carts and the horses would pull them out. Well, some pits were deeper and more challenging and sometimes it was hard for the horses to get out because uh, of, the, of the loose sand and and the weight, and maybe it was wet. Well, one, one steamy summer day, a young farmer was trying to get his team of horses to pull a fully loaded wagon out of the pit. And he was whipping and cursing the plow horses. They were stomping and pulling back. The elder wooden watched for a while, and then he went over to the young man, and he said, let me, let me help. Well, John Wooden recalled, he said, Dad started talking to the horses, almost whispering to them, and stroking their noses with a soft touch. Then he walked between them, holding their bridles and bits, while he continued talking very calmly and gently as they settled down. Gradually, he stepped out in front of them and gave a little whistle to start them moving forward while he guided the reins. Within moments, those two big plow horses pulled the wagon out of the gravel pit as easy as could be, as if they were happy to do it. John Wooden said, I'll never forget. I've never forgotten what I saw him do and how he did it. Over the years, I've seen a lot of leaders act like that angry young farmer who lost control. So much more can usually be accomplished by dad's calm, confident, and steady approach. He said the lesson was it takes strength inside to be gentle on the outside. I feel like not just leadership, but parenting. When we lose control of ourselves, we probably lose control of our families. And so to to be able to be calm and comforting not, uh, you know, be the hothead and, and, uh, and, and just lose it. Um, I don't know, it just looks like a good example to me. I like that story. Uh, Paul also says that our words should be urging. 
It, that means to declare or testify something is true or something ought to be done. We should have some things in our homes that non-negotiables, and our kids should know what they are, and not just we shouldn't just assume that. And when the lines are crossed, then we have to do something. I think this is the hardest of the three to apply. I think this is the most challenging one because as kids grow up, it's really just it's hard for us to change. The way that we treat a five-year-old, sometimes I think we want to treat a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old and a 50-year-old the same way. And so a, a few years ago, I heard, actually I heard someone else preach just on this, uh, this little outline here that's coming up. And, uh, and then I, I found a couple of articles. So I read a lot of different things. I, I'm not going to give credit to all this stuff, but a lot, of this, a lot of these ideas came from the sermon I had just heard and tried to remember, as well as some of the articles that I had read. But it's the four phases of parenthood. Um, actually, one of the articles was on focus on the family uh, on their website, if you want to find it. Um, but he says, as the kids grow up, our parenting should change as well. And our role is different. He says, phase one, the parents are the commanders. That's usually maybe ages one to five. Uh, and that's a loving discipline. And in this stage, kids are learning how to interact with the world around them and the dangers and what they need to avoid. And consistency and drawing boundaries is really important in this stage. Discipline always needs to be done in love and not anger. But the purpose at this stage is to teach that actions have consequences, both good and bad. And we use phrases in this time to move them from discipline to self-discipline. We say no, because, and yes, because. We follow that up and tell them why it's good or bad. They're, they're learning. He says in phase two, we move to the stage of being a coach. This is maybe ages 5 to 12, 6 to 12. This is training. And in this stage, kids have learned what's right and wrong, but then they go to school and everyone else messes them up, and so you have to try to coach them into how to interact in a world around us that maybe other people don't hold the same values to us or the same values that we have. And so we're, we're training them. We're coaching them. It's to uh, nurture our kids to love God and to love people uh, while interacting in a world full of Maybe some people who don't love God and maybe don't love people. We, the, uh, the challenge in this phase is that they're going to fail. They're learning. and It's really hard to watch our, ki our kids fail, um, but we let them fail in small areas at this age so that they can start to learn to make wise decisions. Phase three is the counselor. We become a counselor to our kids, and this is usually the teenage years. This is before they're out of the house. In this stage, kids are forming their identity, and they want people to look at them maybe in a different way than what we, what we want to look at them like, and they desire more independence. It's part of growing up. The, the challenge here is that this is when we don't want to change our style the most, I think. Um, we want to treat our 15-year-old the same way we treat our 5-year-old. I'm, I'm only speaking out of what I, what I see. Um, my kids are 7 and 9, so I'm not in this in this phase yet, so I'm, I might say something different in a few years. Uh, I, I was a youth minister for eight years, and I coached junior high and high school basketball, um, and uh, and I saw this. I had parents come in and and uh, and and talk to me and, and say, "Well, I want them to do this." And well, do they want to do that? Like that's what you would say if you had a five-year-old. So we start to um, operate with a phrase more like we say, "That's the that's the decision you can make." Maybe they don't make the right decision. We can help them. We can help them weigh what the consequences might be if they mess up. We can make suggestions. There are times when we have to pull back a little bit more, but more often than not, if we don't, they're not going to know how to do it when they're older. 
it's risky. I don't, I don't want my kids to, to make bad decisions and to mess up and to have consequences. But I might, maybe in this phase, I have to decide what am I okay with if they mess up in this area. Definitely not that area. So I'm not going to give them any freedom there. Well, then all of a sudden they're, they're 18 or they move out of the house and they make every single decision on their own. This, this is a tough one. I, I don't look forward to this phase at all. Um, if you need help, uh, don't talk, talk to someone else who's lived through it. And then we move into our last phase. Uh, this is the consultant. We become consultants to our, to our kids. They're, they're not kids anymore, they're adults. The act of parenting is, is done, and the kids really have to take full responsibility for their choices. And the purpose of this stage is to release your kids to be the mature, responsible adults that you raised them to be up to this point, the goal all along. I think that I love this phase because it's also how we should treat each other. Uh, it's it's how you know how how you should treat me and how I should treat you and you sh- and you should treat each other. This is this is for all adults. Uh, I, I love the advice here. It's to give advice, to encourage, uh, to resist resist the urge to uh, bail your kids out or protect them from consequences of poor choices. It's to pray for them and to cheer them on. And in this phrase, I think is is just the best phrase for all of us uh, in, in how we deal with each other. Um, we we say. Uh, let me know if I can help. Yeah, I mean, really think about that. When someone comes and tells you, I think you should do it this way, well, because it's, now it's criticism and I don't want to hear that. But if I say, um, man, I wonder, how, I wonder if someone could help me do this a little better or someone who's lived through this and they said, let me know if, I can, if, if they can help, so then I'll go to them. Now, I, I, we, need to, we need to have that, that humility um, with each other, not just for our adult children. Now, the, the, the thing is, these phrases do overlap. Uh, they're not perfect. They're maybe different from one kid to the next. Um, but but this is, this is uh, I think, a good model. I, I like it a lot. Anyway, parenting is hard. Um, I, I always want to do more. I always wish I could, uh, you know, do better, but I don't always know how uh, or when or what's most important to focus on in this, this stage of their life. And so I want to offer one more, one more small list. I know I have a lot of lists today, but uh, three times when we can speak into our children's lives because we're busy and, and we just maybe don't feel like we have the opportunity to do all the stuff that Paul says in dealing with each other and my kids are at school or they're doing a lot of sports or I'm really busy with my job. When can we? Uh, I, I, I took this from Pastor Dave Stone in Louisville, Kentucky. He says there's three areas that you almost always have your kids at, at some point. First mealtime, Harvard professor Dr. Catherine Snow followed 65 families for eight years. She discovered dinner time is, more value, is of more value to child development than playtime or school time. At the table, you can, uh, you can affirm, uh, you can teach, you can listen, you can warn and laugh. Life lessons can be learned there. And so he says to put your phones away and turn off the TV and look into your kids' eyes. He says that travel time is another opportunity. He says, like it or not, inside the car uh, has become a modern-day family room. You can talk with them, and they have no place to run or hide. Kind of like church. I guess you go to the bathroom for a long time or go to the cry room if you want, but pretty much you're, you know, they're kind of held captive to listen to you until you're done. Uh, you can even drive around the block, take the long route if you want to give a few extra lessons that day. 
This is actually a model, a biblical model. Jesus taught his disciples as they traveled. Uh, he also he finishes by saying that bedtime is a great opportunity. He says that it's easy for dads to miss this time. Either we're too tired, we're still working in front of the computer, or we just can't miss the ninth inning. And so we leave it to our wives, and we miss the opportunity to affirm and pray and bless and console our kids before they fall asleep. As much as possible, don't miss this time. So your words matter. I, I don't want this to be um, uh, a time to make anyone feel bad. I want this to be, I hope this was encouraging. And maybe go back and read this this text in First Thessalonians 2, 7 to 12. And just think about it a little bit and how it works for you. Because the truth is these lists and these phases, it's not the same for everyone. Now, these are, this is just a kind of a, a general model. But your words do matter. I believe that they will be received and considered much more when we, when we follow this example that we saw in, in this text in a way that, that your kids will see why they matter. They don't just hear, but they observe. It's creating a better environment, a, a loving, trusting environment, a culture of forgiveness and grace, showing them that, that this life-changing hope of Jesus, it actually makes a difference when, when we apply it, when we live through it, when we receive it, when we receive this grace. And that if we would accept Jesus as, as our Lord or our Master and, and we follow what He says, that we'd be better off. And when we accept, as, accept Him as our Savior, that we know that we've been forgiven, and we want this forgiveness to be a part of their lives too. And then, maybe just then, maybe then they'll start to listen to us just a little more. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much uh, for this letter uh, from Paul to uh, the church in Thessalonica. Uh, I, I thank you that he lived in a way uh, that was just his best uh, at following you, that he, he attempted that. Uh, we know that, that uh, Paul, uh, the writer of that letter, was not perfect, uh, who even considered himself the worst of all sinners. And so I just pray that as, as we think of our own words and our example, that even at times that we might feel that we are the worst of all sinners, that you would just give us the encouragement and, uh, and, and help us to realize that we don't have to be perfect. We just uh, want to follow you and receive the love and the grace that you showed us through sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. So thank you for this day, and thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.